for the last several weeks, we've been walking through what we would call our core convictions or our core values, what, what really makes us who we are. What, what are the things we really believe in, the re- things we really don't want to waver on, and the things that we're, we're okay if it, if it offends you or frustrates you because we, we're going to believe these anyway. And, and we walked through the very first thing, the first week of this, something that you'll hear us repeat over and over and over again, what we call the gospel. That is, the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, the who God is and who we are in light of who God is and how God has now redeemed us by faith through Jesus Christ. This is everything to us, everything that we talk about, is everything we pray about. It's even the, the reason why we believe we can pray because we know that now we are accepted before God. So this is a big deal for us. This is how we can even begin to experience this transcendent understanding of the presence of God. That's the gospel. It's good news for us that God has done this for us in Jesus. Now, this good news then puts us on a mission. It gives us a sense of purpose. Now that we know what we are to believe, who God has made us to be, now we know what to do. And that is to tell this good news to as many people as possible. So we live in a city that doesn't know that there is hope. It doesn't know that there is a Redeemer. You and I have family members, friends, co-workers who don't know this. And our job as the church isn't to save the world, but it's to tell the world about someone who's already saved it. That for us is good news. This is a mission of making disciples, of multiplying followers and disciples of Jesus all around us, all the time. This is our mission. Now then, as as we begin to know this, we want to have a sense of focus about this. We want to, since we know this is our task, this is what we are called to believe, proclaim, and do in the world, we're able to say no to other things. We're able to begin to have a culture of no and say like, you know, We want a sense of simplicity about this. We want focus so that we know what God has called us to be and we're able to not necessarily worry about all the rest of the things that the world expects us to be. Following that, we have a deep sense of generosity because we know that God has been generous to us. He has graciously given himself to us. He has emptied the wealth of heaven in his son for our sake that now we can hold loosely to even that which we have. We can be generous. We can give. We can think creatively of all the ways in which we are now free to bless the world. Now that the gospel has changed us, the generosity of God has changed us, we're able to demonstrate that in the world. And today I want to add to that. As we begin to focus in, started kind of on a 30,000 feet level, looking at who we are, I want us to add what we would call a sense of service, of value, a sense of conviction about being servants. So as a, resu- as a result of that, I, I want to give you maybe like, like kind of a timeline. So we'll wrap up this series this next week, and then we will begin a three-week series on what we would call as kind of an argument or a a biblical basis for church membership, right? A a biblical basis, a a, a biblical stance on what does it mean to really belong to the local church. There's a difference between going to church and belonging to the church, and and going to church is an unbiblical phrase. In fact, we we joked, you know, when we first started this mess uh, um, about two and a half years ago, we had like a, a proverbial swear jar. If you say the phrase, go to church, Drop a dollar in the jar, because there's a sense in which you're talking about the church in a way that's unbiblical. We are the called out ones. You can't go to team, right? You can't go to a team. You can belong to it, and that's the sense that we have as a church, and what it means to be in that, and belong to that, and be in covenant with that, and be submitted to that, and to trust that God has put that in place for us is something we hold very dearly. And so I want to call us to that. This for us, we want this to be a a season in the life of our church where we really begin to think about what it means to belong and not belong. 
Not that any one of us is better or worse than the, than the next, like that there's an insider, an outsider based on our own merit, but we just happen to, and we'll talk about this in the weeks to come, we're strange, right? We're, 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 we're like a country club, except the problem is you don't have to pay dues to be a part of this club. Jesus paid it for you, right? So, so this is a radical country club, and we don't, we don't want to keep people out and put a gate on it so that we can hang out with ourselves. This, this is a radical country club. Jesus paid the dues to let everyone into it. And so what does that mean for us in the life of this church we want to talk about in the weeks to come. And I want to set what I hope is kind of a marker of the life of this church in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read to you, beginning in verse 3, what it looks like as a church, not only to love the gospel, to see that as a sense of purpose, to, to have a sense of conviction and focus upon that, ability to say no, such that even we give generously of our time, treasure, and talents to that. But now we have a sense of identity as well because of this great generosity. Beginning in verse 3, Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We believe that when we read this and God speaks through it, the Spirit indwells it, and it becomes more than ink on a page. It becomes the Word of God for God's people. My hope is, as we begin to think about what the Bible calls us to be, what it is that Jesus has now transformed us to be in the life of our city, we have a very clear and stubborn grasp on what He's accomplished for us what it causes us to do, and then how it causes us to live. We saw last week that, that we now, since we're on a mission, the question isn't whether or not you will be a missionary. The question is when and where. If the gospel has changed you, you are a missionary. You, you are sent to the world, to the nations, with this message of hope to make disciples for His glory. It's not when and where, it's, it's, excuse me, it's not if, it's when and where. And maybe we're going to be a part of the next wave of missionaries to the people who don't know Jesus in our city and our nation in the world. And I hope you'll hear us kind of talk about it this way, like whatever you're good at, whatever you're gifted at, well then do that. Do that well. Do it for the glory of God, but then do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. Such that now we even give generously to this. We let go of our time, realizing it's a gift. We let go of our talents, the things that you've been given that I haven't been given for the sake of his glory. And we even let go, I know this is crazy, of our money. Why? Because the gospel can be made manifest in some of these tangible things. 
And even though the Bible and Jesus talks a lot about money, they're ultimately using money as a litmus test for the gospel. And the same, it seems here, can be said of service. The extent to which you see yourself as a servant, the extent to which you see yourself as less significant in the words of Philippians 2 here than the people around you is a reflection of what you believe about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for you. Now, for those of you in this room, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer, a follower of Jesus. I'm, I'm really glad you're here because I want you to be in on this. Even though this is going to feel kind of like for you like a, kind of like a family talk, I, I want you to be an eavesdropper. I want you to at least be on the outside and, and hold us to this. As we talk about the way we now live generously and we live as servants, I want you to realize where this come from, comes from. I want you to realize this, this is rooted in what we believe about the good news of Jesus. And how we see ourselves in, in the way that we're generous and also the ways that we're servants is related to what we believe about who Jesus is. Jesus is. And Philippians 2 tells us this, that Christ becoming a lowly, obedient servant is the means of God's saving grace. Thus, taking the position of a servant is one of the most powerful displays of Christ-likeness and one of the most compelling evidence is, should be an S on that, I apologize, of the gospel's power to transform. Christ became as an obedient servant. He lowered himself. The word here, it says that he emptied himself. That word has this picture of pouring out. That God emptied himself. Not, not of his divinity, but he emptied himself of, of the glory that he on the throne of heaven deserves so that he could be present and visible amongst us. And since now we know that his emptying of himself, his lowering of himself on our behalf is the means of grace for us, we now take the same position. We gladly call ourselves servants because we think that it is the most powerful display of Christ-likeness. And according to Philippians 2 here, it's the evidence of the gospel in our lives. So Philippians is a letter, again like we've seen for the last several weeks, to a church, a, a local church, people that, like you and me, existed in a time and a place and, and gathered in a space and lived for the glory of God on the mission of God. And, and Paul writes to them, and he uses language different than as we saw, for instance, in the book of Galatians. Remember, in Galatians, he was so angry and so disappointed that they had abandoned the gospel that he skips over the Thanksgiving. Well, we have that here in chapter 1. He says, I'm, I'm glad uh, for all that God's doing. I thank God that when I even remember you, he's going to carry out it to conclude. Is going to carry out into completion. This is a coffee table verse, right? He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. In a day of Christ Jesus, this, he gives thanks for them. And then he begins at the 27th verse of chapter 1, this, this phrase, this, this section of exhortation. He begins to tell this local church what it is that they're supposed to look like, what it is that they're supposed to believe, and how that's supposed to play out. So he begins in verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Holy Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Kind of like, again, this, this manipulative language, kind of like sounds like your mom, right? Look, if you love me at all, right? If, you, if, you, if there's anything good about Jesus, if there's any, any, any affection, any comfort, any love, any sort of fellowship that comes from this, then, then do this. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. And we find that his exhortation for this church is that they're united in some way, that they have some sense of unity, a union, one mind. They are of one mind about something. About what? What is it that they agree on? Is it that they all vote the same way? Is it that they all have the same political leanings? Is it that they all have the, the same views of 
raising children? Is it, is it that they all have the same view of money? No, no it says they are to have one mind about who Jesus is and what he is doing and will complete in their midst. They want to have unity about who Jesus is, what he has done, the encouragement that Christ gives, the comfort and love that he freely bestows to his church. So in this sense, the, the believer is to be so lowly-minded, in this sense, like-minded for Jesus to the extent that they begin to be an example of what it would look like if Jesus were here. And, and this pattern of humility, this love that plays out in the service to one another and to the world is evidence of being changed by Jesus. So let's start with verse 3 where we saw here. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, this is a great command. If you're, you're listening closely, this is like a, this will get you excited. What are you supposed to do today? What, what does the Word of God call you to do today? Nothing. Do nothing. Absolutely nothing. Do completely and totally nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Dispense with it there's something in you that desires recognition, if there's something in you that wants to accomplish something for your own benefit, if you just want to gain the approval of others, if you think you can earn the right to be approved by the things that you do, stop. You're better off doing nothing than to stumble in these vain things. And then he sets the bar fairly high for us. It says that, Apparently, let each of you not only, excuse me, look not only to your own interests, but also the, also the interests of others. Have this mind, this mind of, of selflessness, of, of being beneath God. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he, he, he gives us kind of a, an amazing countercultural supernatural command. Did you catch that? Stop doing things out of ambition. Stop doing things out of conceit. And instead, begin to consider other people. That this word significant is, is the term of value. Literally think of people as more valuable than you. Assume that their interests, that their well-being is actually of greater value than your interest. I want you to catch like the absolute countercultural nature and the radical supernatural expectation of this. <laughs> Stop doing things for your benefit. That fight-or-flight response comes from a deep, ingrained, deeply rooted sense of self-preservation. And he's saying, stop. Stop having that. Instead, consider the value of others. Consider it to the extent that you think it's actually more important than you. Have this kind of likeness in Christ. Have this mind that Christ demonstrated for you. This is interesting. It gives us a picture of humility, right? You, you'll hear this said amongst us several times. There are a lot of authors that have kind of run with this, but humility isn't necessarily thinking less of yourself, but instead it's thinking of yourself less. You'll hear this repeat this several, in this way. It's the sense of like humility isn't that you just think lowly of yourself. It's that you stop thinking about yourself. Humility is when you stop looking at yourself and evaluating yourself and, and thinking about your value and, and measuring yourself, and you just stop thinking about you. 
That's important because it seems here that the, the root of humility isn't in thinking about yourself. It's seeing what God is doing outside of you. How do we do this? I get to preach the gospel to you. We can only do it by this supernatural work of Jesus. Who, of all people, of all people should have looked at the people he came to save and said, you're not worth it. You're not worth it. This is a waste. You are not worth it. And yet he came to serve them. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. Even though he was God incarnate, made visible in the flesh amongst us, he did not treat people in a way that was unloving or condescending. Instead, he condescended to take the place of these people. So one of the first things you see here is this. You are not God. No, really. Like Jesus is like, I'm God. I and the Father are one. Right? The language of the divinity of Christ is made manifest throughout the New Testament. We see that God is present with us in Jesus. He's not up there and out there. He is incarnate. He's made flesh. He is right here. So that now, if we ever wonder what is God like, we can just look at Jesus. What's God like? What would God do in that situation? We look at Jesus. He's God. And yet, what did he, being God, see it fit to do? Empty himself. Take the form of a servant. This is really important. You are not God. So this is actually a great encouraging place to start. If you're in this room and you're wondering if there is a God, if you find yourself having doubts, like, is, is God real? Is it does, is God, does God exist? Can I trust even that he exists, much less that he's good? We can start somewhere on common ground, right? Let's agree, even though you don't know that there is a God or is not a God, let's just agree here, you're not God, right? There is a God, and if, if for you who are doubtful in the room, if you're doubtful that there is a God, let's agree here, you're not him, right? All the things that you want to do, you struggle to make happen. All this that exists got here before you, right? You didn't bring it into being, and it will still be here when you leave, right? All of this, all, everything that exists is here because of something God has done. It all exists, and at the very least, we can be, begin by saying that, that everything that is in place is in place not because of you. No thanks to you. And we can even begin there. That's actually a great place to start. I am not God. This is beautiful. This sets us free to begin to open our own minds to the possibility that someone else is God and that there's something else going on. If you've wondered why people don't worship you, if you've wondered why people don't just like get out of the way on the highway as if you're an ambulance, if you wonder why people cut you off in traffic, if you wonder why people don't exalt you and throw money at you and, and praise you all the time, you know why? It's because you're not God. You're not. And the praise we see at the very end of this is, blow your mind, no really, verse 11, every tongue will confess that not you is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of not me, not you, but God the Father. It's a beautiful place to start. This is, this is I want you to crack open your own cold heart to the to see and develop the heart of a servant that Jesus demonstrates for us. Because I know right now there's some of you, you desperately frustrated about the situations in your life. 
you really are angry and displeased that things have not turned out the way that you wanted them to. And this might set you free. And to continue to expect that everything should work out for your benefit and your glory will be a cold and lonely and devastating existence for you. When we recognize this, we we begin to be open to the fact that now we have freedom to not be God. You ever notice you make better friends uh, when you stop pretending you're God? Whenever Whenever you stop expecting your friends to bow down to you, this blew my mind, right? I got married, and I didn't, I didn't really think I was God, but I thought I was God. And I was really disappointed that my wife didn't worship me. I was really disappointed that she didn't do everything that I wanted. I thought that she existed for my happiness. That's what I thought God put her there for. Come to find out, God put her in the world the same reason and the same way that he put me in the world, for his glory. And when you allow people to exist for his glory, You set them free from the bondage of your poor ability to be God, and you set yourself free from the poor ability of you to be God. You're not God. Acts 17.24 puts it this way. It says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Do you hear that? We We can't control where God is or what God is doing. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent, omnipresent. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself is the one who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He doesn't need you to be on his team, but he loves you, and so he's called you to it. The second thing we see here is that you can't do what only Jesus can do. The ability to serve is predicated upon knowing how God has served you in Jesus. Mark chapter 10, we saw this when we were walking through the gospel of Mark. It says that whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to do for you and for me that which we could not do for ourselves. And this frees us up to serve in an infinitely lower capacity with joy. When we stop with this, uh, this kind of obsession with having to fix everything and having to save the world, we're set free to just kind of serve and love. You ever notice that? Whenever we see that God is in control, that he is sovereign, Jesus is going to get the glory, then it allows us to just begin to kind of relax and serve in some limited capacity. We can stop pointing to ourselves, but we can point to him. There's something deeper going on here. Did you catch the language? Though It says, now, 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 Jesus has done this, but, but there's something going on here. The, the language here, it says that he was in the form of God. So he had, the, he had the very nature of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself in taking the, and, then, and this gets interesting, the language he used here, the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men or human beings. So he was, he was the image of God, but he was the likeness of of humans. This is interesting because there's a common theme that goes throughout the New Testament. This picking up of, of this, beautiful, this beautiful story that begins in Genesis, and before sin enters the mix, God is there, and, and his, his likeness and his image is visible in the people. And Adam and Eve, you can look at Adam and Eve and see the image of God, but then sin comes in and destroys it. 
So what do we do? We're left. And the, the rest of the Old Testament tells us like this recurring story of how they keep trying to fix it and keep failing. God continues to restore them until finally Romans 5 puts it this way. Therefore, as, just as one tras- trespass out of Adam led to condemnation for all people, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all people. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's our father Adam, the many were made sinners, so by now the one man's obedience, that is Jesus, many are made righteous. In Adam, we, we look like the world. In Adam, we, we, we want our own way, we, we demand it, we will we'll swindle and steal, deceive and betray to get our own way. But in Christ, we lay down in the same way that he laid down what was rightfully his. We lay down ourselves, our tendency to draw attention to ourselves for the sake of him. Something big going on here. 1 Corinthians 15 says it this way, that Christ has been raised from the dead, and now he's the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep, or all those that have died. He's the beginning of the end of death. Get that? Right? So there's a resurrection coming, and he's the first one in. And after that, so too, everyone else will follow. Christ is now this first fruit. So in verse 22, that in the same way and as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Why is this? The end's coming when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every every authority and every power, here president, for he, that is Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Did you catch that language? One day, every knee is going to bow. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue will confess. Everyone will say that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 45. By myself I have sworn, the Lord says, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return or be taken back. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Daniel 7 puts it this way. That one day there's going to be a righteous son of man, an ancient of days. It will be presented like upon the clouds. In verse 14 it says, And to him will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And the kingdom will be one that shall not be destroyed. So we serve, but we don't serve in a way that Jesus serves. We don't try to do for the world what only Jesus can do, but instead we serve in such a way so that people see Jesus. We serve in such a way so that people will will see what Christ is like, emptying himself, even though he is the righteous judge, even though one day he will come back as a king, as a king with the blood of his own enemies, according to Revelation chapter 20, on his own clothing, with a a mark on his thigh that says, Lord of Lords. This this is as awesome as it gets, right? He's going to come back this way, but in the meantime, what is he? He's emptied himself to serve, to take our place. Because we find out in, in this beautiful picture of God's emptying himself is that Adam in arrogance thought to become like God. Christ in humility became truly human. Adam was given the opportunity to be a human, a creature, a a creation of God to live in communion with him, but he did not want that. Remember the serpent says, hey, if you do this, you're going to be like God. This is an interesting little kind of a turn of phrase. 
We find out in Genesis 1 that they're already made like God. They're in his image. They're in his likeness. And the serpent comes along and says, you're going to be like God. And instead of re- receiving the likeness of God that he's given, he, they want something else. They had one job. They had one thing. And in their own arrogance, they couldn't just be human and accept their limits before a loving God. They railed against it, wanted to be like God. Whereas Christ who apparently is the very form and nature of God, was willing to humble himself to demonstrate to us what perfect humanity looks like. It was necessary that Christ would bear the image of God in order to redeem those who reflected the fallen and distorted image in the world and then restore them and restore all of that to God's perfect image. I have to get you to see this. It was pride that caused humans to fall. It was pride that got us in this mess. But it's humility. Humility of Christ, exactly, that's caused them to be resurrected. It was pride that brought in death. And it is humility that brings about life. Christ becoming an obedient servant is the means of our salvation. Thus, being like a servant is one of the most powerful displays of Christ-likeness. This is important. Christ becoming a lowly, obedient service, a servant is the means of God's grace for us. He's done for us that which we could not do for ourselves. And when you impose your will on others, when you demand things of them, when you are entitled to things, when you in pride step in to a world and demand people to make it about you, you distort the image of God. But when you lay down your rights, when you lay down your will, you look like Jesus. You look like Jesus. We find that submission to God is what allows us to serve. Colossians 3 says it this way. Whatever you do, in word and deed, we saw this last week, and things that we give or let go of, we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Galatians 5 says it this way. You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The unity and the harmony that Paul wants for this people, for this church, and for us as a group of people can only be achieved if they reject all forms of self-seeking desires, all vain glories, and instead begin to humbly regard one another as more important than themselves. Jesus is the equalizer. And we desire to have this a part of our DNA. We desire to have this a part of who to be who we are. This picture of lording things over one another, we saw this in the Gospel of Mark, but Matthew 20 says it this way, that he tells the story to his disciples who were wanting to be at the right hand of the Father and the right hand of Jesus when he came into his kingdom. Right? Very arrogant thing to ask. Jesus, hey, let me be your right-hand man when you come back and take over the world. Right? That, what, that's an arrogant thing to ask. Right? Send, send the president a letter. Hey, can I hang out with you after this is all said and done? Good luck. Right? So... Matthew 20 says, that's not how this works. It shall, and not, it shall not be so among you, but instead for us, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
Now that we know what God has done for us, we see ourselves as servants of him. We serve, we see the need, and then we act. We see what's broken, and then we respond. Because God in Jesus could have just ordered things to be fixed, right? He could have just said, stop it. Seriously, people, quit. The way I share it with you is every time we read like Genesis, there's kind of a sense in which if I was in control after Genesis 3, the story would have ended, right? God made these people and, and they messed it all up. And if I'm God at that point, I'm like, well, let's not do that again. And what does the Bible tell us? It just keeps going on and on and on, chapter after chapter. He restores them, redeems them, gives them another shot. He, he pushes them into a situation for his glory. They fail, they rebel, they have idols, they want glory for themselves, they don't want glory for God, they don't want to be his people, they want to be their own people, and every single time they do, he restores them, redeems them, until finally, enough is enough, he steps into the mix, takes their place, receives the wrath that they have deserved from the beginning, and gives them the glory and joy that they have never earned. This is amazing. When we see this, we see ourselves as servants. We see ourselves as needy people. So here's what this looks like, and I'll land on this. I, uh, I've gone, I've preached too long for three weeks in a row now, and so I owe you some time. And there's also a really bur- a great burden taken off, uh, off of my shoulders, the, the testimony of the gospel that Kari and Melissa shared with you in their words and in, and in their own actions really kind of is quite enough. And so I don't have much to add other than just to kind of echo this, all right? So Jesus has taken our place, has done something for us now that we radically see the world differently. We don't see it like the world sees it. We see it from the eyes of God. There are needs that ought to be met. And Jesus could have demanded that those people be exiled. He could have demanded them in wrath to to depart from his presence, but instead he drew into their presence and drew them near to him. And when that changes you, when that messes you up, when you realize that Jesus has served you in a way that you did not deserve, and that he has served you in a way that you could not do on your own, it changes the way you see yourself amongst others. When you begin to realize that Jesus has done something for you, that by all rights, most of the people that you know deserve more than you, and yet he did it freely anyway, it messes with you. So for us now, if we take Jesus' word seriously, if we want to be great, then what we ought to be first is the servant. We serve. So here's the way uh, we'll kind of end on this. This is, a, this is a phrase I hope you hear us say in the life of our church. If you see the need, you've heard the call. If you see the need, then accept that as God's call. Where do I get this? Well, well, ultimately, this is a reflection of the gospel, is it not? Jesus looks down at brokenness of humanity and goes, I'm right here. Before the foundation of the world, I was slain for their sake. I'm already ready to meet the need. Before there was a a gap, before there was a chasm between God and his people, Jesus was already, already ready to meet that need. God already anticipated and already had predestined. Don't let that word scare you. It just means that God's not caught off guard. It just means that God's not scared by all the things that we've done wrong. Instead, he sees it as like confirmation. He sees the need. Jesus hears the call. And he gladly, willingly takes our place. That'll start to mess you up. It'll start to mess you up. When you see the need, then you feel called to act. 
We have the heart of a servant. We believe that now we've been sent not to tell everybody what to do, but to serve them and to walk alongside them toward Christ-likeness. This is beautiful. This gives us freedom. I'm called as the servant here. You're called as the servant here. This gives me a great deal of joy come Tuesday, right? Hillary, Trump, Gary, what is it? The other one in, in, in South Dakota, it's Charles, the Constitution Party. We can't vote for that guy. It'd be cool, but there's like four guys on the ballot. None of them are called to serve you in your city and your family and your home. None of them. But I am. And so regardless of what happens, you know what, I, you know what I'm called to do come Wednesday? Serve you. Lay down my life for you. And lead you to lay down your life for one another. And that's incredible. Because you know whose responsibility it is to be a good neighbor to you? Me. Unless Donald moves into your neighborhood. Until then, it's me. I'm called to serve you. Do you know who's called to lead my family in Christ-likeness? Not Hillary. Me. I'm called there. And when I see that need, when I see what's hurt, I don't sit back and expect someone else to fix it. I don't cry out in anger and bitterness that someone ought to get this right. I see it and I, my heart is broken for it and I jump in with it. I see the need. I see the call. I, I hear it on my own life. So whatever happens this week, I'm still your servant and I will love you and serve you gladly. I serve you gladly. We get to disagree happily because we get to agree on this one thing. Jesus has done something for us in such a way that now we serve each other. Other people aren't called to serve in the way that you see that need. If you find yourself seeing that there's a need around you, guess what? That's God opening your eyes to it. So this is where you'll hear this in the life of our church over and over and over again. Um, if you find yourself, not if, when, not if, when you find yourself with a complaint against the people in this room, when you find yourself with a complaint against this church, guess what that means? Guess what that means for you? You've seen the need. You've heard the call. In fact, to the extent, if you sit back and think it's someone else's job, then what might be happening is quite terrifying. If you think that it's someone else's job to serve you and meet your needs, you are revealing that you really don't believe that Jesus has served and met your needs. You really believe this is still about you and not about him. And even in the language, we, if we think, oh, somebody better fix that, you're right, somebody should. We've been praying to, for God to put somebody uh, in our midst that has that on their radar, and it looks like it's you. You're going to have that sensitivity. You're going to have that radar. I won't have it. Do you know why? Because God put you here to do it. And when you see the need, you've heard the call. And you I would say that the place that we see this revealed the most is what are you critical of? What do you complain about? See the need? You've heard the call. You'll say, that's, that's too much, Jonathan. You're going too far. Stop complaining. That's ridiculous. Read with me in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine his lights in the world. Did you get it? What you complain about is where you believe your God. What you're critical of without a sense that you want to serve and, and bring it about into the light is where you feel entitled to be treated like God. So this is a beautiful, this is an impetus for us to do amazing things, right? If you ever find yourself, well, this church needs this. Yeah, you're right. And thank God, 
God put you here to make that happen. Right? Even to the point where like, I don't like the way he teaches the Bible. What's that? You feel called to teach the Bible? Let's do this. You feel the need? Let's, I, let's equip you. Let's resource you. Even insofar as you find yourself saying, I don't like this church. I don't want to be a part of this church. What's that? You feel called to plant a church? You want to start a new church? So do we. Because when you sense the need, when you feel it and you see it, friend, realize it's the light of God. It's the Spirit of God shining on you and opening your eyes to His great purpose that can only be fulfilled through you. When you see the need, you've heard the call. To reject it is to reject what Christ has done for us. This is going to be driven by servants. And here's where I want us to end and pray for this. Um, as, we, as we begin to be members, as we think about what it means to be a member in, in terms of a member of a body, in terms of a, a member of a family, the words that the, the Bible used is talked about to talk about what the church really is, some things start to emerge. And we believe there are elders, there are pastor, bishop, deacons, or pastor, bishop, elders that oversee and teach and lead. But then there are also, there's an office called deacon. Do you know what that word literally means? Servant. Servant, like waitress, waiter. And so here's where I want you to pray. If, if this is the case for us, if the last shall be first, then the people in our church who get a say-so are the people who serve. Now this is beautiful for us. I want you to begin to pray for what this will look like in the life of our church. I, 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 right now, I want you to begin to pray. God, begin to open my eyes to the servants around me. Let's honor them. Let's, let's show them 1 Timothy chapter 3, the, the character traits of a servant, someone who's been changed by Christ, looks a certain way, and, and they'll be what we call deacons or servants in the life of our church. Even now, begin to pray that God would emerge and show you, man, who are the people that selflessly give of themselves? Who are the people that like, like deny themselves to serve? And then let's jump in and do it. If you want to say so, start serving. I'm, I'm leading, I believe, this group of people, I hope, because I want to serve you. This sets me free. I don't have to talk about whatever I want to talk about. I get to talk about Jesus, and, and that sets you free from hearing a lot of annoying things. And hopefully, in the life of our church, this is what this begins to look like. We see the need, we sense the call, and we serve. We serve our city, we serve our families. We don't sit back and complain that someone ought to fix that. We sense that as a call to bear witness and display the image of Christ in the world. When you are like Adam and you desire to be like God, destruction happens. But when you're like Jesus and you put yourself beneath others, something amazing happens. But don't miss this. If you find yourself looking at this church and you're expecting someone else to give, someone else to sacrifice, someone else to serve, I need you to hear this as a warning. If you think it's someone else's job to serve you, someone else's job to teach you, someone else's job to raise your kids, someone else's job to set things up and tear things down. If it's someone else's job, can I, can I warn you? You may have missed the gospel. You may have missed the good news that while it was your job, it was your job to be obedient, you failed and rebelled against God. And yet Jesus came and happily took your place to redeem you, to restore you. And though he was in the image of God, 
He came and he started looking like you and me to demonstrate God's great love for us. If you find yourself bitter, disappointed, always blaming, would you be careful? That may be evidence that you've missed out on what Jesus has done the way that he served you. If you see something in the meantime that needs to be done, jump in. Here's where I get to end and thank you. Every week, everything that happens that's good and healthy in the life of this church is done by people who being compelled by the gospel and transformed by the gospel serve you gladly. You're sitting on a chair probably that you didn't put out. I'm standing on a stage that I didn't set up. And it was kind of cool. Last week I talked about generosity. Uh, and after I preached, my church generously like, granted me a great gift uh, to appreciate their pastor, right? Well, in some sense, it's going to happen again. I'm here preaching about servant, uh, about being a servant and, and serving, right? And you know what's going to happen? A bunch of people are going to stick all this stuff back in a trailer. It's going to be awesome. So if you want to know what this looks like, if you want to know what this feels like, look around you where every week people host a small group in their house. They're learning to be apprentice leaders and gospel community leaders for your sake, to serve you for the sake of your soul. They set up chairs, they set up things, they take pictures, they put stuff on the website. They, they do all the stuff that you don't do. And if you're wondering what this looks like, friend, praise God, look around you. This is happening. This is really happening. Let us thank God that that is true. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that despite, um, despite our own desire to run from you and to rail against you and rebel against you, uh, you and your great mercy emptied yourself of all that you deserved to be our servant. You came to serve us in such a way that we could not serve you you have done the thing that we could know by no means do ourselves. I thank you for the evidence of that in this room. I thank you that even now there are lives changed. We got to celebrate that even today in baptism. Uh, we're not the same once we receive this gift of service that you've done for us. Uh, it, just, it just turns everything upside down. But maybe for the rest of us, the, the gospel has terminated in us. The gospel isn't flowing through us through generosity and service, but instead it's terminated upon us. Maybe in some small way we really believe that you died for us because we deserved it. And the good news for us is just something we feel like we've earned. Would you begin to break our hearts and soften our hearts that we would see that this good blessing, this gift of service that you've accomplished for us is meant to flow through us such that when people see the way that we serve so selflessly, our city, our, our family, our workplace, our own church, the way we serve spouses and friends, the way we put other people's needs above our own becomes just a powerful display of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Let this be a day that we repent of any sense of entitlement, repent of any sense of pride that we deserve to be waited on and let us receive with gratitude the beautiful gift that you've given us that you have served us freely and you continue to send others to serve us generously thank you for this grace in jesus christ amen